Rise and shine, you Syracuse superfans. It's time to pour yourself a tall, delicious glass of orange fizz. Syracuse recruiting news, insider information, latest SU buzz. The Syracuse blogosphere comes to life on the central New York airwaves. It's Fizz Radio. Welcome into Fizz Radio on the score 1260. I'm Thomas Schultz, joined alongside by Brad Klein. And you'll want to stick around for the whole hour show. We've got a really special guest coming up later. That's Damon Amendolara breaking down our top 100 SU players of all time, especially the top five, which we just released this week. That'll be a really fun conversation. But first, Brad, some big news coming out for Syracuse recently. Alan Griffin was granted a transfer waiver from the NCAA and he will immediately be eligible. And that's just absolutely huge for the Orange because they were looking for that guy to replace Elijah Hughes. And if it wasn't going to be Alan Griffin, well, there was a lot of question marks about who it could be. But Alan Griffin stepping into that role, I'm not saying he's going to be Elijah Hughes. I don't think he will be. But I do think he's a guy who you can easily rely on for 15 points a game, 40% shooting from the three. Yes, he seems like he could be a reliable player, and I would put one of my kidneys on the notion that he's going to be a starter over Quincy Garrier, but I would proceed with caution with Alan Griffin. I understand the expectations are sky high at Illinois last year, 18 minutes per game, but he had nine points, four and a half rebounds, so the efficiency is supposed to be fantastic from him, but I gotta be honest with you, Thomas. I'm not expecting that much from him as a starter. He only has two career starts, so I'm not sold on him as the next great SU transfer. You know, when Alan Griffin transferred to Syracuse in April, everyone immediately thought Wesley Johnson, Michael Benajay, Andrew White, John Gillen, Elijah Hughes, all these great guys that immediately impacted the Orange. I'm not expecting Alan Griffin to step in seamlessly because, remember, he transferred in April. He hasn't had a full year like Elijah Hughes did to really absorb the zone, learn the program, learn his guys, and now he's expected to immediately step in and produce. So what are you expecting from him? I'm expecting a modest stat line. I I mean, 15 points. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'll subscribe to 15 points. That's fine. But... I'm not relying on Alan Griffin to be the leader. I'm not relying him on him to be Elijah Hughes. I think he's going to fill the lane, and I think he'll he'll play his position. He'll shoot pretty well. But at the end of the day, this is Joe Girard's team. It's not Alan Griffin's team. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I don't think anyone really expects him to be Hughes. Honestly, if you can get another Buddy Bayheim-esque player, though, from Alan Griffin, that's pretty good. You get another guy who can space out the floor, shoot threes really well, and just give you a really solid option from the wing and play solid defense, hopefully. But I think you bring up a good point where this guy just really didn't have the time that he might have had in a normal offseason in the Syracuse program. I guess that could really, I think that will really impact him. Obviously, they have more time before the season begins. But it sounds like you, and I guess I'm agreeing with you, this team relies on Joe Girard to take that next step. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. Whether Alan Griffin received this transfer waiver or not, Joe Girard had to take a massive step up because we love Buddy Beheim. We think he's a great shooter, arguably one of the best shooters in Syracuse basketball history. But at the end of the day, he's not carrying your team. He's not. He's not the point guard. He's not the facilitator. He might be the one taking the last shot at the buzzer, but he's not the leader. 
it's Joe Girard. Joe Girard's the alpha. Buddy Beheim is the beta. And forget about the bigs. They're, I don't even, what, Omega? What comes after? I think it's Omega, right? I mean, forget it. At that point, it's Joe Girard's team. And Alan Griffin has to realize that, that even though he's an efficient player, even though that was really cool for Illinois, if he wasn't starting at Illinois, he will be starting here just because of the void. But don't expect him to be the superstar, the all-ECC player that Elijah Hughes was. Well, but here's the thing. Elijah Hughes wasn't a great player at Eastern Carolina either, right? And I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying that Alan Griffin is going to be Elijah Hughes. I don't think he will be. And I don't think this team's going to be as good as it was last year, really, without Elijah Hughes. But I do think if you got, have another guy who can easily be at least your third option on, on any given night, lead your team in scoring... That's always something that's going to be really beneficial for your team, obviously. And Alan Griffin should, he should be that guy. Obviously, if he's not, that's a whole lot of different problems. But I don't think he needs to be the leader, especially since he's just coming into the program. He's not going to have a redshirt season like Elijah Hughes has. It seems like it's going to be Joe Girard's role, whether he wants it or not. And I'm sure knowing Joe Girard, he's pretty confident about that. I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, this is great news for the Orange. I just think if you can get a solid 15, a guy who can give you anywhere from 10 to 20 points a game, just the, the possibilities of this team and the potential is so, so much higher than otherwise. The potential is high. I get that. And the expectations, the Syracuse fans should be should be giddy. This is exciting. that For Alan Griffin to receive this transfer waiver, it is big for the program. But you have to realize who he is. He's an Illinois transfer. Bayheim did not recruit him. He hasn't been with the program long. He's been with the program almost just a little bit longer than Kadari Richmond, who was recruited by Syracuse. So he's going to have to compete with Kadari Richmond for playing time. Will Alan Griffin start? Probably. I think he will. But Kadari Richmond, what I'm hearing right now is that he's going to command some minutes on the stat sheet. And that might cut into Alan Griffin because they play a very similar, if not the same position, right? I know that Richmond's more of a two than Griffin is. Griffin's more of a three. But at the same time, I can see Richmond cutting into his playing time, and rightfully so, because he is a pretty dynamic scorer. So I've got a question for you, Brad. I, I think Richmond will be very intriguing this year. The thing with him, though, is he can play three positions, right? Like, he can play point guard. He did in high school. I don't think Joe Girard's coming off the court that much, but... If, let's say, Gerard, Buddy, and Alan Griffin come off the court five minutes a game, each game, that's 15 minutes for Kadari Richmond. So, one, how many minutes do you think Kadari is going to get? And two, how many of those minutes are going to be at the small forward position and replacement of Alan Griffin? It's a fair question. I think the one thing you have to realize is that Alan Griffin, whether you're happy or nervous about his transfer waiver, he is more of a question mark than the other players. That's the one thing that Syracuse basketball can really go into this season with comfortably, is that we are consistent. We know what we're getting out of our point guard, our shooting guard, our power forward, and our center. Now, Elijah Hughes leaving, that's huge, but Syracuse has four returning starters. Okay, And then you also have Quincy Guerrier, who played impact minutes last year. He'll probably be coming off the bench again. Alan Griffin is a question mark. Not saying Kadari Richmond isn't, but you're not going to want to take Joe Girard and Buddy Beheim, the staples of your team, off the floor much. And we know 
that Jim Beheim doesn't like to dip deep into his bench. So I don't see Joe Girard and Buddy Beheim coming off the floor much. Maybe those TV timeouts will be their breathers, and after that, they're playing close to 40 minutes a game. I'm not comfortable with a guy like Kadari Richmond, as talented as he is, only just picking up the breadcrumbs from the plates of Joe Girard and Buddy Beheim for his playing time. I think it's going to be a competition between Alan Griffin and Kadari Richmond preseason. Who wins? I don't know. To the victor goes the spoils. But Jim Beheim is not going to give the upper hand to Alan Griffin based on seniority. That's for sure. Call me an optimist, Brad, but I think we're going to see eight guys on the floor for the Syracuse wow. this year. That's right. Three guys off the bench. Quite an improvement from years past. It's going to be very interesting. I mean, it's funny, but I mean, they have a lot of options off the bench this year, especially now that Alan Griffin's going to play. Whether or not he ends up being this guy who gives you 15 points a game, it gives you another option at least, right? So it's not where a thing where it's like, all right, Kadari, we really need you to play well, or all right, Quincy, you really need to find a three-point shot because you have a guy that can do that with Alan Griffin now being able to actually step on the floor during the games. I think I'm not, you know, eight, eight players is a lot for Syracuse. It's not for most other programs, but... I think maybe at least we saw last year there might have been some fatigue down the stretch. I don't think that's inaccurate to say. And now, hopefully there shouldn't be because you have a guy at every position who has been in the program for most of them, or are highly rated recruits, that you can trust with Quincy Garrier, with Jesse Edwards, who should improve in his um, sophomore season. Kadari Richmond, a pretty impactful freshman that might come off the bench, maybe. I know Alan Griffin, maybe he's not going to be this high... 20 point a game score or anything I don't think he will be but by having him on the team you are able to say all right now we can move this guy down a slot we can move this guy down a slot and you just have more depth that we really haven't seen in years under Jim Beheim. Now fatigue might be a problem with Alan Griffin only played 18 minutes per game two career starts how will he translate into a 30 35 minute per game role? Yeah, I think that's a good point and one that really a lot of people aren't thinking about in regards to Alan Griffin because we just kind of assume, well, if a guy did well in 15 minutes, he'll do well in 30, 35 minutes, and that's not always the case, but it'll be really interesting to see what happens in that regard. But when we come back, we're switching gears a little bit. We're talking football, fall sports, (laughs) what's going to happen, the NCAA Council coming up with a decision to maybe give people another year of eligibility, stick with us on the other side of Fizz Radio on the score, 1260. Welcome back into Fizz Radio. Thomas Schultz joined alongside by Brad Klein. And remember, if you miss any part of our show, you can find the podcast anywhere you get podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Music, or on our website at orangefizz.net. And of course, follow us on Twitter at orangefizz as well. And we'll have a really special guest coming up in the next segment, D.A., of the DA show at CBS Sports Radio joins us to count down our top five of Syracuse athletes all time. But Brad, right now we've got, uh, there, there's kind of some interesting news coming out of the NCAA where they're thinking about giving guys and every fall sport athlete an extra year of eligibility, whether they play or not. I, for one, am a fan of this idea. I think it'll be really, in this weird pandemic year, you kind of need to do something where you otherwise wouldn't do it. I'm a fan of it. What do you think? Right, so the, the Division One Council, which is made up of athletic administrators, athletic directors, presidents, what have you, they recommended this to the NCAA Board of Directors. So the Board of Directors has to approve of it. I, I, I can't stand it, to be completely honest with you. I can't fathom 
a fall sport athlete playing the season in 2020 and it not counting against, counting against them on their eligibility clock. I just can't. It, it kind of defies everything that we know about college athletics right now, which is four years of eligibility no matter what, four years of playing. And if you get hurt, then fine, you get an extra year, and you get to play for four years. That's what your scholarship permits. When you sign on the dotted line in high school, it's saying, hey, four years. That's what you're signing for. To change the rules just like that, I know it's terrible, and the pandemic, it's not exactly fair. But I'm not going to lie to you. It's not fair for anyone. And to do this, it's, it's boosting the athletes that are affected right now. But what about those high school seniors right now? that are not affected, that don't have a fall season of their own in high school, and now they're signing a college offer, and down the line, they're going to be affected on the depth chart because some of the players are there longer. They shouldn't be, but they're there because of the pandemic year of eligibility, and now they're stuck behind them. Well, I think you bring up a good point in saying that this pandemic, obviously, it it's not good for anybody. Everybody's suffering from it in different ways, of course. And in the grand scheme of things, this isn't the biggest deal, obviously. But I think it's interesting from your standpoint where you're thinking about the high school athletes and saying, all right, well, it's not fair for them. Sure. But I don't know if it's fair for an athlete this year to say, all right, well, if I want to have my four years of actually playing, then I have to play. I don't have any other option. I think if you go either which way, somebody is going to be negatively affected, right? It's either going to be the current athletes or it's going to be the high school athletes, which will be the athletes in a couple of seasons. I think the NCAA is looking out for their current athletes' best interests here, and I don't really see an issue with that because these are the people who are currently there who really the NCAA, ha- NCAA has to take, um, has to give every opportunity for while they can, and you know, it's it's unfortunate for the high school athletes, but that's something that they'll just have to kind of worry about down the road. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I get it that these athletes are are getting the short end of the stick and they're looking out for the current athletes because the current athletes have a voice and the current athletes can fight back on this and the future ones don't. But this just isn't how life works, Thomas. I mean, a lot of people right now during the pandemic, they've been furloughed, Right. And they might not even get their jobs back because when everything turns normal, eventually there will be a brighter, younger, more qualified applicant for the job. And the bosses are going to turn around and say, hey, why am I bringing this guy back when this wide-eyed, bushy-tailed young person can do it for less and they're better, right? People have lost their jobs temporarily, and I can guarantee you it will turn into a permanent loss of employment. It's the same thing with college sports. We pretend like it's its own bubble, no pun intended, that, oh, college athletes have it great, they're on campus, they're getting a free education, they're playing the sport they love, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, especially now during a pandemic, sports can converge with real life. And this is a real life problem right now. Now, I'm just going to use the same approach I've used with myself and with my friends. No one's going to feel sorry for you. Everyone is going through the same pandemic. No one is going to feel sorry for you that you lost maybe a fall football season because everyone lost a fall football season. It's terrible. I understand. But you can't penalize a group that hasn't even have, isn't even there that can't even speak up for themselves 
like the high school seniors, the high school juniors even? Well, I think it's I, – I don't agree with the position to say, well, we're all suffering, so tough. You know, I if there's something you can do to make this situation better – I think the NCAA should go ahead and do it, and I don't see why... But this isn't better. This isn't better. This is just delaying the problem. This is just kicking the can down the road for other NCAA administrators to do. I can see why Mark Emmert would want this, because Mark Emmert, I think, is retiring soon, if if I'm not mistaken. And when he's gone, the next NCAA commissioner is going to be tasked with dealing with this, okay? But so, why, why can't you just increase the size the scholarship size for universities and for the next couple of seasons so even if those athletes do come in and they are better well they have a scholarship and they have the opportunity to win a job well you and i both know that that's not going to happen because even though seniority is not the deciding factor on the football field or the basketball court and well really the football field here in this fall sports conversation even though that's not the primary factor, it's going to help, right? Who's going to win the job? Who's more likely to win the job? The guy that's been there longer or the guy that's younger doesn't know the system more? Okay, I understand. Well, obviously the guy who's been there longer. Yeah, probably, right? Uh, probably. And, and let's get real, okay? College sports is not for older kids. I don't want to see 24, 25-year-olds on the football field, on a college football field. I just don't. It's not... You don't want to see Brandon Whedon, 28? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's, it, I mean, it's almost not even safe. It gets to the point, right? If, if you're a 20-year-old freshman going up against, like, a 26-year-old man, how can you even warrant that? I'm just... It just... We have these rules for a reason, these four-year rules of eligibility... Uh, four years of eligibility for a reason, and to mess with it because of the global pandemic, I think it's overcompensating, to be completely honest with you. I just, it seems like, I mean, obviously the NCAA, it's in a lose-lose situation, right? They can't make a situation, they can't have a response or a solution where everybody will appreciate it or agree with it. I don't know. I mean, I don't think we're going to see guys who are there, athletes that are there until they're 26. Why not? Medical redshirt, medical redshirt plus an extra year of eligibility. How about Antoine Cordy? Antoine Cordy had two medical redshirts and a regular status quo lay redshirt earlier in his career okay so he was there for six seasons he was there for six seasons so what if he was still on the hill and what if he tacked on another year of eligibility that would make him a seventh year player and thomas i know it's rare and i know it's the exception but the fact that that's even possible under this recommendation it just rules it out for me i just can't even listen to it when you start talking about sixth year seventh year guys it's not even college sports anymore. Well, I mean, I, I think, I don't know. I, I, I think you should have the option. I don't think many people are going to stay till they're 25. We saw Nick Mellon on the lacrosse team. He decided, yeah, I've got this extra year I could use. I don't want to. I'm just going to go pro. I've been here long enough and I want to move on. And I think that's what most people are, are going to do. And you know what, Brad? At the end of the day, we're going to have to move on too. In our next segment, we're going to talk to Damon Amendolara about SU's top 100 list at Orange Fizz. The top five we finally released it this week. It was a long process, and we're really excited with how it turned out. Make sure to stick with us on the score 1260 when we talk to DA.
Welcome back into Fizz Radio on the Score 1260. I'm Thomas Schultz, joined alongside by Brad Klein, and we welcome in our special guest, Damon Amendolara, the host of the DA Show on CBS Sports Radio from 6 to 10 every weekday morning, and of course, our leader here at Orange Fizz, joining us on the show. And DA, we're going to talk about our top five finally released of our SU Top 100 list of athletes all time here. In your opinion, is this the top five of the right order of Gary Gate? and then Floyd Little, Carmelo Anthony, and then Ernie Davis, followed by Jim Brown at number one. So I think it's inarguable that Jim Brown has to be number one. I just don't know how you could possibly make a case really for anybody else because Jim Brown is arguably the greatest football player in professional football history. And when he was at Syracuse, he was a dominant force that helped destroy so many opponents in so many big ways and so many big games. He was unstoppable in college and still has that lore about him 60 years later on campus that from a simple football perspective, you could say he's the greatest football player that Syracuse has ever produced or ever wore the orange. And then you add on what an elite lacrosse player he was and then the anecdotes about what he did on the basketball court as well and I just don't know how you could possibly top somebody that is that great at all of those things. I think where you can start making debates is the rest of that top five. And I thought the Carmelo Anthony ranking at three was really interesting because we're basing this all on one season. And that one season's brilliant. And that one season delivers a national championship. And that one season as the post alludes to, Jim Behind said, hands down, he's the best player in America. But is one season of Carmelo greater than four seasons of Dave Bing or seasons of Derek Coleman or four seasons of Pearl Washington? That's a tough one for me. And I think it's understandable to put Carmelo in the top five. But I looked at Gary Gate and I wrote the Gary Gate post. And I really dug into Gary Gate's legacy. Gary Gate is a two-time award winner for the best player in college lacrosse, basically the Heisman Trophy lacrosse he won twice. He was the best player in a team that won three consecutive national championships. He held the single-season goals record for like 30 years in NCAA history and still holds the single-season Syracuse goals record. For four years, Gary Gate is the greatest lacrosse player of all time and might still be and delivered all of that at Syracuse is one season of Carmelo better than four seasons of Gary Gate at that level. Again, I don't think so. And I think that a Gary Gate might be above everybody besides Jim Brown, because isn't that resume better than Ernie Davis or Floyd Little? I mean, Ernie Davis, of course, went the Heisman, but is it four years where he's the best player in football basically is what we're talking about. Is it the equivalent of two Heismans? Of course, lacrosse is different than football. Fewer schools certainly played back in the 80s. But while I think Jim Brown's not debatable at one, I think you could make an argument that the other four are can slot a lot of different ways. Well, DA, one thing that Mello did over Gary Gate was won a na- win a national championship as a freshman. And I know Gary Gate was fantastic for Syracuse for four years, won the national titles, plural. But on the other hand, you have to ask, hey, what if, what would Melo have been as a sophomore, junior, and senior 
and to win it as a freshman is unprecedented. But you did write the Gary Gay piece, fantastic piece. Go check it out, orangefizz.net. And I just want to ask you, because Gary Gate is so much more than the rings. He's so much more than the numbers. And I know that you know what I'm alluding to. It's Eric Gate. You described his career as a tour de force. What did you mean by that? Well, when you really, like I said, dig into Gary Gate's career, he basically changes lacrosse. And him and his brother, Paul Gate, come here, come to Syracuse from Victoria, British Columbia. And so there's a little bit of an unknown in Canada, box lacrosse is a pretty popular sport. And in the United States, in the late 80s, mid-80s, when they arrive on campus, lacrosse is a very niche, very regionalized sport. It's still pretty niche and regionalized, but back then even more so. So the Gates come here from across the country and almost immediately put their stamp on the program. They go to the Final Four in year number one. And Gary Gates, just as a freshman, already really difficult to, to defend in your seeing this kind of vision that he has on the, on the field and just what an athlete he is in playing lacrosse. And then he does something that nobody's ever done in lacrosse is basically have the greatest three-year run ever. As a sophomore, junior, and senior, as I alluded to, they win three consecutive national championships. Their final season is arguably the greatest college lacrosse team ever, the 1992. He wins two most outstanding player of the year awards. He sets an all-time record and he has what I think is the only signature move in lacrosse history. Yep. You know, you have Michael's tongue wagging and you have, you know, LeBron's swat and block in the finals. You have Tom Brady's two minute drill. But in lacrosse, here is a signature move, which is the air gate. And he has this bravado to pull off something that really still doesn't seem even possible. If you know college lacrosse, there's a circle around the net. You can't step inside that circle. And as, and there's fair play, there's fair field behind the goal. He takes the ball behind the goal. And as the goalie's looking forward out to the rest of the field, because of course he didn't have to worry about scoring from behind him. Gary Gay takes the ball in his, in his stick, leaps from the outside of the circle behind the net and scoops it behind the goalie's head into the net calling it the air gate. And it still defies logic that you could do it because nobody still does that. And he does that in a tournament game at uh, Syracuse's Carrier Dome to help beat Penn en route to a national championship. And people were just in awe of it. Like, what was that? What did we just see? And he pulls this off again during his career, and it just becomes immortalized. I mean, he's on posters. I mean, imagine a lacrosse poster that says air gate in every dorm room you know, on the SU campus and all across central New York and in lacrosse. Again, it was a superhero was playing college lacrosse. So that lore about him is very Jim Brown-esque, that there were things that people still talk about, like, were you there when this happened? That makes Gary Gate just an all-time legend. Damon Amendolar, the host of the DA show on CBS Sports Radio from 6 to 10 every weekday morning, joins us here on Fizz Radio. And of course, if you miss any part of this interview, you can check it out anywhere you get podcasts, whether that's SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple, and also on our website at Orange Fizz. DA Floyd Little, he has more receiving yards, rushing yards, and touchdowns than Ernie Davis and Jim Brown. I know both of those guys, Jim Brown, maybe the best athlete of all time, Ernie Davis, a Heisman Award winner. Should they be ranked higher than Floyd Little just because of their legacy, or should those statistics have more of an impact? I think you have to weigh the statistics 
And I thought an interesting part of this, the rankings that we did, which I loved, was that everybody had a slightly different set of reasons they voted for guys, you know, in where they did, and the women, of course, as well. And I like that. I like that some of us on staff said, all you can use is what they did at Syracuse. That's it. Once they left Syracuse, it was like they didn't exist anymore. Others said, well, this was the start of a great career, so shouldn't we factor that in to how great they were as an athlete? For me, I kept coming back to something which I felt a little uncomfortable about. I thought that as a ranking system, we really valued football and basketball far more than all of the other sports. And as I went through it, and this was my own bias as well, I said, boy, the dominance in women's lacrosse, you know, what one of the female players would have done, the equivalent in men's lacrosse would have put her 30 spots higher. The dominance that we've seen, you know, in other sports like track and field or uh, field, field hockey, that type of dominance in a men's sport, specifically football, basketball, would have launched them higher. And I said, did we do this right? Because isn't it just what you could have accomplished via your peers? So I say that because I think Floyd Little's stats do matter. I think it does matter that for those years, he was that productive. Again, you can't put him higher than Jim Brown, even though he has better stats, because Brown's dominance was in multiple sports and that he's essentially the barometer of greatness within the university. But in terms of Ernie Davis, if you want to say Ernie Davis's peak was higher because of a Heisman, but that the production of Floyd Little's better, I think, yeah, there's a debate to be had there. I think there's an argument. Now, it's an interesting conversation. Ernie Davis has the natty, but, you know, I'm just leaving it at that. Uh, going back to Carmelo Anthony, it's no surprise that he's the highest rated basketball player on the list. I think to me that he was rated there because more than Dave Bing, more than Derek Coleman, because he, he carried his team singular more than the other players did. Do you think that's the case uh, compared to the rest of the top five? I mean, did he carry Syracuse basketball more than Floyd Little or, or even Gary Gate carried Syracuse lacrosse or football? It's a good question. I think so because basketball lends itself to one player being that dominant and having that much of a role in your winning and losing. There's only five guys on the floor. When it comes to football, I mean, think about it. As great as Jim Brown or Floyd Little or, or Ernie Davis are, they need the guys blocking and they need an entire offense, 10 other guys in offense. They need a defense to hold down the opposing team. There's so much that a singular football player can't accomplish, no matter how great he is. I mean, look at Barry Sanders and so many others that if, how, as great as they are, they can't necessarily elevate their team to anything more than what they can do. So I do think it's fair to say Carmelo could carry his team to a championship where the other guys couldn't because the sport lends itself to one guy being able to do that. We're joined by Damon Amendolara. He's, of course, the leader at Orange Fizz and the host of the DA show on CBS Sports Radio from 6 to 10 every weekday morning. DA, I know Jim Brown. Of course, he's the number one athlete here at Syracuse all time. Is he the best athlete of any American all time? Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I consider him the greatest professional football player ever. I think he's the greatest NFL player ever. Now, there's a short list of guys, Lawrence Taylor, Joe Montana, Tom Brady, that you could say are the greatest of all time. 
I think Jim Brown topped them. And I say that because Jim Brown had only nine seasons in the NFL and obliterated all rushing records. And when he left the game, I think it was the 1965 season, 66, somewhere around there, he holds the all-time leading rushing record for another 20 years. So it wasn't like the next guy came around and beat him. He does that in nine seasons. He also plays a style of football in 1961, say, at his peak, that I think would still translate today. I think he's one of those rare guys that you put him on a football field today, he's still carrying tacklers, running around the end. He's faster than most linebackers. He's stronger than most defensive players. I just, I tend to believe that Jim Brown was way ahead of his time. Had he played another five years, could have put the Russian record out of reach and could still do it today. So in that way, I do think there's a case to be made that he's the greatest college football player ever because we were seeing that type of production from him on the college football field. It was just a much shorter timeline. I don't know if he's the greatest athlete, though, ever, because how do you say the greatest lacrosse player that dominates or the greatest basketball player or women's basketball player is is not as great as what Jim Brown accomplishes there. You know, you look at some of the players like in UConn women's basketball history. They win four straight national championships. There's a couple of classes. They win, they go to four consecutive All-America teams. They set records. And, you know, in that, in that realm, that you could argue is the greatest of all time in terms of any athlete. But in terms of Jim Brown in his sport, I think, yes, you can make the argument he is the greatest collegiate football player and professional football player ever. Well, D.A., it's a good thing that you didn't say definitively that Jim Brown is the best American athlete of all time, because I don't know if you know this, but Bo Jackson is an avid listener of the program. So he was, I, I was going to get a call. I'm, I'm sure Bo Jackson's going to call and say, hey, you know, this guy, D.A., he's got to go. I mean, what, what are we yeah, talking about here? He's out of but, his uh I want to get this in. You know, we're talking about the D1 Council recommending an extra year of eligibility for athletes in the fall, whether they play or not. And they're also talking about moving fall championships to the spring with the COVID-19 pandemic. It seems like a lot to figure out. Syracuse football's first game is in three weeks. Do you think we're going to start on time? Slash, are we even going to have a fall season? I don't think we're going to start on time. I think that they're really going to try to get this fall season in, and it might be an abridged season. It might end up being a short-circuited season. I don't think it's realistic to expect college football to move ahead and play football games in three weeks with what we've seen happen on campuses, with people testing positive, kids testing positive, and then campuses being shut down like UNC and Notre Dame. And that's, that's the biggest difference between college and the NFL. It's not that you can't test regularly for these players. It's not that you even can't keep the players negative. I think you can. The difference is in the NFL, you've negotiated the CBA. And so it's if this thing happens, then we just do this and we work around. And the players are supposed to be courted off from the rest of society doing their own thing. And if they don't, they're penalized, et cetera. In college football, you cannot, under this archaic system, separate student-athletes from students. So if you shut down Notre Dame's campus because there's 300 outbreaks for UNCs, you can't keep your football team on campus to practice. And thus, you can't play Saturday against Wake Forest. 
So I don't think we'll be far enough along in this a month from now to start football. But I do think they were going to be hell-bent on trying to start this at some point in time and get some games in. Maybe that's four games. Maybe that's three games. Maybe that's one game and they go, we can't do this anymore. I think we're going to see college football games played in the fall, but I don't think it's going to be in three weeks from now. And the big thing is, can they get rapid testing? Because if this rapid testing happens in the next, let's say, eight weeks, two months, six to eight weeks, then on campus, you hypothetically have a cheap test that you can take and then immediately get back a response, a result in two to three hours. Well, now you can really control what is happening on your campus, removing people, removing kids, separating the athletes from dangerous situations. If you're waiting a day or two for your results and they're expensive, certain schools can't do it, what have you, you're really playing with fire. But if we get rapid testing in, then I do think it's doable, although I think it's more likely that these conferences, the ACC, the SEC, and the Big 12 go, we're going to try it, but we're also going to stand by for spring football because one thing I don't think we're going to see is no football played for this season. I don't think we're going to totally erase this season. I think they'll desperately try to get some games in somewhere in the spring semester, even if it's January or February. It'll be really interesting to see what happens, of course, at Syracuse, where we have all your content covered at Orange Fizz or nationally as well, as you mentioned, DA, with the SEC, Big 12, and the ACC. And you can catch all of that on DA's show. He's the host of the DA show at CBS Radio from 6 to 10 every weekday morning. And when we come back, we're going to get into your questions for us. It's Fizz Feedback. You're listening to Fizz Radio on The Score 1260. Welcome back into Fizz Radio on the Score 1260. I'm Thomas Schultz, joined alongside by Brad Klein. And you can check out any part of the show that you missed with our podcast, anywhere you get your podcast, and make sure to check out our Twitter page as well, where we post our Fizz feedback questions. But with that being said, Brad, what is our first Fizz feedback question? Starts with football. Given the testing disparity between Syracuse and Liberty football, remember, Athletic Director John Wildhack called Liberty's uh, testing inexcusable. Will the Orange play the Flames this year as scheduled? Yes, no, or maybe 80% of Fizz Nation says no. Hey, man. Fizz Nation's just getting smarter by the week. I got to agree with Fizz Nation. <laughs> and I, I, how can you, How can you at this point, I don't think John Wildheck is going to do this, but how can you in any world try to spin what's going on at Liberty and saying, you know what, we can still make this game happen, especially for a non-conference game that doesn't impact your ACC standings? Just cancel it already. Like, what What are we waiting for? And just to be clear, uh, John Wildhack actually called Liberty's testing, quote, deeply troubling, not inexcusable. But it is inexcusable when Liberty is asked to follow ACC standards and they're only testing the symptomatic players. They're not testing the asymptomatic players. And that just defies everything we know about the coronavirus. Now, I will say this, though, Thomas. Liberty hasn't broken any rules. The ACC is mandating that non-conference opponents follow the ACC guidelines during the season, but not during training camp. Liberty can technically do whatever it wants. The problem is when Syracuse football players start hearing about it and sit out of practice, and they sat out of four of the first eight practices. So Hugh Freeze, the head coach for Liberty, he probably has to tighten up his ship if he actually wants to play Syracuse this year. But yeah, we move I, on. 
I, I think that's something that uh, a lot of people may not be watching is Syracuse football players and ACC players. They're watching what these other schools are doing. And if they don't like Liberty's policies, which they probably don't, they might just sit out the season. Yeah, and, and Liberty needs Syracuse more than Syracuse needs Liberty. Remember, Syracuse is in the ACC. They have five home opponents, five home conference opponents, and five home away opponents without Liberty. The season will go on. Obviously, Syracuse wants to play this game, but if they can't, they won't. But we move on, sticking with Syracuse football. Former SU defensive end Kendall Coleman was released by his hometown Indianapolis Colts. He was signed as an undrafted free agent. What does the future hold for him? Either another NFL team will sign him, an alternative league, maybe the XFL or the CFL, or he has no on-field future. And 63% of Fizz Nation says that Kendall Coleman will join forces with another NFL team. Yeah, I think Kendall Coleman's going to have to learn a new song pretty soon. It starts, Oh, Canada. He's going to be playing in the (laughs) CFL pretty soon. Fizz Nation, look, I I know we all love Kendall Coleman, but the CFL, I think, is probably going to be the place for him. And, you know, that's a pretty solid career as well. CFL, pretty high-level competition, and he'll, I think, should do well there if that's where he ends up. Yeah, it's hard. And I don't really understand the the 20% that said no on-field future because he's a good player. Uh, he, was ne- he was never an all-ACC player for Syracuse, and he always played second fiddle on uh, to Alton Robinson. But at the same time, good player. I mean, good enough to be signed out of college. So I think that he will find a future on the field. I think it might be the CFL, maybe the XFL with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but probably not the NFL. Maybe another NFL team will sign him, but not for long. He'll be released shortly after. And this is an interesting one, going back to Syracuse basketball. What will Alan Griffin contribute to SU basketball this year? 20 points per game, 15, 10, or 5. And Thomas, no one is hopping on the 20 points per game bandwagon like I thought they would. Everyone kind of agrees with us. 56% of Fizz Nation saying 15 points per game and 37 is going with 10. Yeah, I mean, like I said, Fizz Feedback, Fizz Nation, they know what they're talking about here. Alan Griffin seems like a guy who will give you 13, 14 points on average per year. Could he get 15, 16? Yeah, sure, maybe. Could he get 12, 13? Yeah, I could see that as well. I think we kind of know what to expect with Alan Griffin, which is nice because we don't have these ridiculous expectations, but he's also hopefully not going to disappoint. I think hopefully these are reasonable expectations. They seem to be from everything we're hearing. Alan Griffin's going to be a really solid player, but he's not going to be the star of this team. That'll probably be Joe Girard, but, you know, a very decent, huge, big-time addition for Syracuse. Yeah, I, I'm sticking with 15 points. I, he's not going for 20, for sure. That's just a lot in the, in the college game. But he averaged 9 points per game in 18 minutes for Illinois last year. So for his scoring to essentially go down is a little unlikely because even though I am a little nervous about how we'll translate to Syracuse, I'm not nervous about the offensive end. Alan Griffin will make his shots, and he'll contribute on the offensive end. The 2-3 zone is really what I'm nervous about. Yeah, it, that's the question mark, right? I mean, and you know, it's been a weird offseason. He's not had the time that he usually would have to learn the 2-3 zone, and for any first-year player, I know, I think it was Elijah Hughes recently, or O'Shea Brissett on Twitter, uh, had a video of what it was like to learn the 2-3 zone, and it looked confusing. But that'll just about do it for us here on Fizz Radio. For Brad Klein, I'm Thomas Schultz, and make sure if you missed any part of our show to check it out wherever you get podcasts or on orangefizz.net. But we'll see you next Saturday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. This has been Fizz Radio on The Score 1260.